Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of almost 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. We have a special episode this week. Uh, everyone is on the road. So I'm going to offer uh, three uh, achievements in training is what we often call it, but really just three things that I've learned uh, before the break. After the break, we'll simply go over to Phil instead of having an open-ended discussion and he's recorded three things that he has learned. Now, Phil is no doubt going to focus on training and what he's doing in the gym and with his athletes, so I'm going to try to focus a little bit more on nutrition-type things or just general observations, sort of from the academic or science world. Although, I'll tell you, my legs are absolutely wrecked just getting a chance to squat again. Um, Sometimes work will really pull you away from the consistency that you need. But uh, I digress. Uh, lesson number one for me in these past couple of weeks has been that short periods of simply not eating. Uh, I hate to say fasting because that brings to mind purposeful day-long fasts, things of that nature, but just we'll call it three squares for fat loss. Uh, and part of this was reinforced by, well, by two things. One is on Thursdays I'm doing uh, what Chris Shugart calls a pulse fast with a friend of mine at work, we're simply sipping whey protein spiked with a little bit of leucine uh, every 90 minutes or so. Uh, but honestly, it's not the constant intake that's the focus. It's getting out from under an insulin burden, if you will. We live in a high refined carbohydrate, high insulin environment, and I just think getting out from under that constant insulin and blood glucose Uh, pressure, if you will, not to burn fat in your blood. Um, Very handy when it comes to leanness. Strength and Muscle Sport News. The new information that I learned regarding this was uh, a paper that came out by uh, Hagel, Hagel, H-A-G-E-L-E, and colleagues uh, in the Nutrition and Diabetes Journal. Uh, Nutrition and Diabetes, or Volume 8, Number 19, just came out, but it's entitled High Orange Juice Consumption with or Between Meals uh, Differently Affects Energy Balance in Healthy Subjects. So they're essentially looking at this idea is what happens when you're in a constant state of higher blood sugar and your pancreas is on overdrive secreting insulin. Um, as listeners know, over past weeks, uh, Dr. Nelson and I would be talking about how insulin is sort of a fuel selector, right? When insulin is high, when your blood glucose gets high enough or it's always high, your pancreas is responding, secreting insulin. And that really, it, it turns the knob away from fat oxidation, from fat burning as a fuel source. So being in a fed state all the time, it might be handy to really try to minimize muscle breakdown, but it's not going to be very helpful for, for fat loss. But so what they did was they took... Um, 
Well, they started with a statement that said sugar containing beverages like orange juice can be a risk factor for obesity or type 2 diabetes, although underlying mechanisms are less clear. So again, they gave orange juice either with or in between meals, uh, and they looked at different markers uh, over a four-week crossover intervention. So for four weeks, the subjects who were, uh, there were 26 healthy adults, you know, average weight. Uh, they consumed 20% of their calorie requirement uh, as OJ. And again, either with a meal, so adding to the load of that meal, right? So you're going to have higher uh, glucose and insulin responses probably during uh, those meals. But again, between the meals, they wouldn't consume anything. Then they crossed over after a washout period and they tried it the other way where that same amount, that same dose of grams of carbohydrate and orange juice was consumed between their meals. Uh, long story short, after the between meal intervention, the subjects got fatter. Fat mass increased uh, about one kilogram. So that's not a lot, right? We're talking about um, two and a half pounds ish, but it was statistically significant. So reliably, uh, got slightly fatter with that constant uh, blood sugar environment, right? Uh, higher blood sugar environment. Uh, by contrast, after the within meal intervention, so just having the same calorie load, but with their meals, uh, their body fat went down a third of a kilogram. So not even a pound, right? We're talking about four weeks here. Uh, so you have to be very careful measuring body comp in short duration studies like this. Um, but there was also some uh, reduced liver stress in the form of uh, an enzyme called GGT. So um, they look at day-long glycemia, so blood sugar levels, insulin secretion, changes in basal insulin sensitivity. Uh, if you look across the whole day or blood triglycerides, there were no differences, right? It averaged out across the course of the day, but it didn't on their waistline, right? It was setting the stage. Now, it's not a long intervention. We don't know how long this would continue, um, but again, to me, it really reinforces this idea that you might want to do short periods of simply not eating instead of constantly having that sugary, you know, uh, coffee in your hand, you know, like that caramel macchiato type thing, or, um, an, even an energy drink, you know, you're drinking it to stay alert or maybe even burn fat, but not if it's the sugary kind. Uh, in any case, it says juice consumption in between meals may contribute to gains in body fat and have adverse metabolic effects. So that's my first lesson. Again, uh, I've seen it with, by trying to get out from under constant eating on Thursdays uh, with, you know, the low dose uh, whey protein and leucine, you know, sort of pulse it in every so often, uh, but, or just not eating, you know, between breakfast and lunch, for example. I get up quite early, maybe 4.30-ish. Um, I'll have some breakfast on my way out the door to the lab or on my way to work. And then not eat, really, um, sugarless coffee uh, throughout the morning, probably, but no calories, really, until about noon. And just having that few hours, uh, especially during that time where you're really likely to secrete excess insulin, right, in those morning hours, um, helps with leanness. I just, it's very interesting. It's almost like that 1970s, 1980s, three squares a day idea. It's sort of wisdom, perhaps. And again, for... Reckless weight gain, mass gain, probably not. I'd be eating constantly, not, you know, not caring if my blood sugar and insulin were high all the time, or actually preferring that. But for fat loss, you know, maybe three squares is good. Uh, the second thing I'd like to uh, touch on, um, 
came up in a talk that I was giving, well, just yesterday in West Virginia um, at the American Society of Exercise Physiologists meeting, and that's, have we lost something? This is sort of general philosophy here, but if you go back 100 years, 200 years, uh, maybe a couple hundred, you see small groups kind of clustering throughout history doing amazing things. People were, like, for example, let's go, let's discuss, like, Ben Franklin, statesman, inventor, author, uh, all of the above, right? If you go back and you look at, like, the, the cohort, uh, Edmund Halley, right? Robert Hooke, uh, Newton. Um, Newton wanted to know something, so he invented calculus so he could figure it out. Invented calculus. I mean, it's hard enough to study that stuff for students these days. Uh, Robert Hooke, uh, in that cohort, invented the microscope, coined the word cell. Not kidding. You know, Edmund Halley would look into what are the commercial applications of some of what he and then uh, Hooke were doing with like vacuum pumps and things like that. So he created a diving bell and guinea pigged himself by going underwater underneath this, you know, um, bell with air in it and testing it out. Uh, but again, the point being is, I, I think sometimes uh, in the sciences, our students have lost that drive to be inventors and discoverers. Uh, a lot of times what we do in an academic setting is we study something, we make it into a poster or a manuscript that maybe a few dozen to a few hundred people will view. Um, and then we sort of submit it for filing and, and move on. And the impact on the world is fairly minor. I think that's one of the reasons that we keep doing Iron Radio, right? We have uh, tens of thousands of people who tune in, and we feel like we can do a little more good. Uh, so I'm just going to suggest uh, to listeners, think about being an inventor, a discoverer, an explorer of, in some way. I think maybe we've lost some of that uh, in our tamed down society. Um, I think that's part of the impetus, in fact, why I was interested in... Um, this coffee brew method that I've been talking about uh, on the podcast recently, uh, the actual act of moving beyond sharing some science in a poster or a manuscript or, or doing a lecture and turning it into a product that might help real people in real settings, it takes extra effort, but the impact is much larger. Uh, and my third thing that I've learned, just to bring this to a close here because I don't want to go on too long, is my appreciation for that. Um, the legality, the safety, when you want to roll something out to the public, a method, right? You can patent a product. You can also patent a method. Uh, and that's, there's a lot that goes into this, working with lawyers, getting the right paperwork in place, the safety and the efficacy testing. Um, I don't think most people realize how much of this goes into a food product, for example, before it reaches the public, at least in a responsible larger company. I don't think we see this very much in the fitness world. I've often said our business people aren't real business people. Artists aren't real artists. The scientists aren't real artists or aren't real scientists when it comes to rolling things out without due diligence. Uh, so there have the delays that I've felt uh, bringing something like this coffee brew method to market for a population like lifters, like our listeners, um, it's reinforced that to me a lot. You don't just start telling people uh, what to eat or how to lift without doing some of the, the background work, doing your homework, 
uh, looking at their readiness to change, you know, screening them for safety, um, periodically monitoring, you know, the outcome. Uh, are you getting what you want out of it? But too, it's too eager, right? You get people that are very excited uh, in fitness when they're younger, especially, and they just roll out their own little method. They try to reinvent the wheel. Everything's a new revolution, new rules, new everything. Uh, and it, that's not how science usually works. And it's not very um, responsible. So those are three things that I'd like to just share this week, right? In this special episode is three squares for a fat loss. Again, stop eating at least for a few hours here and there. Um, have we lost something was the second lesson that I started to ponder. And number three is my appreciation for the legalities and the safety and the efficacy work that brings something to market. And again, I don't think the fitness world does that uh, perhaps as much as they should. Uh, so having said that, I'm going to zip it. Uh, we'll go to break. And after the break, instead of a discussion, we're just going to check in with Phil. And he's going to share a little bit of news himself and uh, some of the things that he has learned or achieved in the last uh, couple of weeks. So take care and we'll see you next week. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, 
That's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Good morning, everybody. Here we are on Iron Radio. This is Phil Stevens, powerlifter, strength coach, strength guild, amongst other things. Sitting here, everybody's on the road today, so I'm giving you my two cents here by myself. And I figured first, because it's kind of a hot topic, we would touch on the IPF proposed, get that proposed rule changes. Um, everybody's kind of up in a roar about this, but one thing to remember is they are just proposed rule changes. So, no need to get too crazy yet. Um, I honestly think most of these rules are probably probably pretty spot on. That said, um, you're talking about the lifting federation that is probably the most nitpicky. Um, they just have a tendency to, in my opinion, anyways, uh, go a little too far. Not lifters, let lifters just lift, get back to kind of the roots of, of powerlifting. But you know, the argument is, you know, they're trying to make it a an Olympic sport, this and that. But anyways, they have the tendency to take it a bit too far. And some of these rules, they are doing just that. Um, we'll just kind of run down the list here. I'm looking on a, a Reddit profile, and uh, they're going over the rule changes. And number one on the proposed rule changes is add a female class around 95 or 96 kilograms. Um, yeah, this is great. I mean, the argument is the IWF recently added that a new category for women citing gender equality, um, equal opportunity for women uh, to lift and Honestly, IWF was way too late in doing so. I mean, they were stuck at 75K for, for quite a while. For those of you that are uh, uh, kilo ignorant, that's, what is that, 165 pounds. So you're talking anything over 75K was a super. So that makes a huge difference. I had, I had numerous lifters that were kind of, we were stuck in that class because anything when you've, in, in like in powerlifting, uh, when you go above that class, usually you go way above that class, and there's a huge difference in between a female that's 165 pounds and one that's 265 pounds. Um, so, anyways, IPF is uh, proposing they add one as well, and it's either add the 95 or 96 category or revert back to the old weight classes, which had them going from 44 kilograms up to 90 and 90 plus. Um, so 90 being 198. So I think it's a great idea. I don't know anybody who would argue, argue against this. Um, especially with the way women are headed down. Like I have one, one female that's going to be a super and she's like 200 and I think she's weights 208 now. And she's like six, three and very well put together. So, and she'll be a super, but uh, with her, we know that, okay, we're going to be a super. So we need to keep adding weight, but, um, for those girls that are stuck in that, uh, you know, 180 around there, there's no reason, in my opinion, that they should have to be supers. There are, there are women that are definitely built to be very optimal around that weight. So, um, the next one people are kind of, I've seen a couple people, uh, poo poo is, uh, minimum totals for international events. And I just can't understand why you would be against this it's an international event 
if you can't get the total, you can't go. Uh, it's not a uh, go to a local event. If you want to go to international events, get better. You know, get the total. And I don't know, there was an argument about, like, oh, it'll, well, some smaller countries may not be able to make it. Well, that's not our fault. They get better. Just because you live in, in I don't know where, uh, Zimbabwe or something, and you know, there's four powerlifters in the whole country. It doesn't excuse you from getting better and being at a certain level to be at the international stage. That happens in weightlifting, too. There, You have to hit a certain total to go to a national event or an international event, and you get pulled onto the team. So... I mean, it's just part of the game. This isn't, uh, <sighs> in this day of participation trophies and everything else, it's just like you don't just automatically get to go to an international event because you're from an international country. Um, you know, you should be able to stack up. And uh, if you can't cut the mustard, then you need to go go elsewhere. Um, knee sleeves. So Denmark proposed a new rule concerning knee sleeves in classic powerlifting. They want the technical controller will ask the lifter upon entering the platform to pull the knee sleeves down and the knee sleeve up again in front of the controller. The reason for this classic powerlifting was introduced to get rid of supportive equipment. It's IPF's uh, way of, of having a class that doesn't have suits and things like that. For them there is no wrapped raw category so if you have wraps on you're in single ply so but anyways uh, it has been seen by numerous coaches in competition and other athletes people using things such as hair dryers to heat up knee sleeves to be able to put them on to the point that after they lift you have to cut them off um, of course <laughs> like anything else uh you give people an inch and they're going to take a yard. Knee sleeve uh, construction has come a long ways in the last few years. Knee sleeve competing has become very popular. Knee sleeves have come to the point they are much like... Uh, I would argue they're on the level of old wraps in many ways, if you do like many people are, and sizing down. Um, meaning... Stuffing 50 pounds of potatoes into a 25-pound bag and having four or five people pull them on. That's the other thing that they've seen, observed, is uh, people having to have uh, numerous handlers help them get their knee sleeves on. Um, yeah, I don't see a problem with this. I mean, if you, uh, if you can't put them on, then don't wear them or just step up and compete with wraps. So, I mean... I don't think it'll slow competition any. All you got to do is have your knee sleeves down. I wear knee sleeves almost every day that I squat and deadlift to keep my knees warm. And I can grab them and pull them up. I mean, it takes some pulling, but it doesn't take me more than five seconds. So let's say it takes me five seconds a knee. It's my turn. They call me to the platform. It takes me 10 seconds to pull my knee sleeves up real quick. Then I address the bar and make my lift. Uh, I don't see an issue with that. So, um... Yeah, and I mean, like me, I don't compete. I compete in wraps. I'll always compete in wraps. It's just what powerlifting has always been to me. I've been doing it for 20 years, and uh, I compete wraps raw. So in the, the federations I lift in, it's called classic raw. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I it's. I think the, the knee sleeve thing has gotten a little a little crazy, and, you know, it's people. It, it, it started out as a new new way to set records, 
and now uh, there's not a lot of difference. So, I mean, they they fit like a lighter a lighter wrap used to. I'm not going to say they're as strong as a heavy wrap because they're obviously not. Um, but <clears throat> I don't see an issue in this. Um, I think it's an easily uh, judged rule. I don't think it'll take away from the uh, the sport at all. I think it'll probably even the playing field because yes, you need to be able to. Let's say you don't have 14 handlers on your team, uh, and you don't have four people to help you pull on each knee sleeve. It evens that competition up. Each person has to be able to pull it on themselves. I guess the only thing that would uh, change this is if you had like superior grip strength or something. And you're able to grab on your knee sleeves and pull them up better than Joe over there, who doesn't have as good a grip as you. But it's still, uh, Joe can get a bit, a little better grip if he wants to be able to pull them up easily. But I don't see a problem with that. This next one, I think, is a just a not a very good rule, and it's worded poorly, and uh, it's just going to go bad. The words "as flat as possible" to be added to the rules of bench and no feet on the bench to assist getting an arch. So, then bench shall be placed on the platform with the head facing the angle, front angle, 45 degrees. The lifter must fly lie as flat as possible on his back with head, shoulders, buttocks in contact with the bench surface. The feet must be flat on the floor, as flat as the shape of the shoe will allow. The lifter is not allowed to put up the feet on the bench surface in the, propose, in the purpose to make it easier to reach an arch. His hands and fingers must grip the bar for abortion, blah, 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 blah. So, the lifter's feet are not allowed to touch each other underneath the bench either. So, anyways, anytime you add in subjectivity to a rule, you are asking for problems. What is as flat as possible? So, um, I just see this ending poorly, and... I see it as just, it's going to say nothing but issues, because you're going to have people arguing, well, that is as flat as I go, you know, with my feet flat. So, um, I think the whole people bitching about an arch is, it's just tiresome. Generally, the only people that bitch about people with a big arch are people that can't do a big arch. And if those people could do a big arch, they would do a big arch. I myself cannot do one. Um, I've got a short torso, and I'm a thicker guy. Most bigger guys just can't arch. You know what we do instead? We get stronger. Um, some of the lighter class women, of course, are very bendy and flexible, and they're able to get into an extreme arch, and then they go extreme wide grip. Um, it's just the nature of the sport now. It's been around for a while. I don't know uh, how you're going to change it. I don't think there is a way you can easily change it unless you just wrote took out the as flat as possible and just said you have to lift with a flat back but I mean I see issues with that too because if we're engaging our lats correctly and things like that as we should there is going to be some arch to the bench if not you're asking for injuries so I think it's just I think this rule gets shut down I don't think it's going to happen um, you would have too many people pissed off and you're entering in too many uh, uh, another variable and you know, you're, when you enter, whenever you enter variables, you're also entering favoritism, possibility for favoritism, and things like that. Where, well, Sally was arched one quarter inch more than I was, and mine got turned down, and hers didn't. And it was like, ah, it's just bad. It's just a bad idea. So, um, this next one is just an obvious rule to me. 
if you bomb on a lift and you don't if you bomb on a lift you don't continue to the next disciplines at international events I don't know when this changed even at local events this used to be what happened um if you came out and bombed your squat guess what you were done for the day you just didn't get to go on um because you didn't put up a total so and that was the whole purpose of the meet there wasn't much of this bench only and deadlift only and things like that it was uh we're here to compete in powerlifting you can no longer put up total so guess what just go home there, there was no point you didn't even want to keep going you bombed so um and I see, uh, and this is only to, the only one to change this in international events. So what's the issue here, people? Um, and I can see it. You know, I've, I've let lifters go at my events that were uh, new lifters uh, just so they didn't have a horrible first experience. And we were at a small local event. Um, they bomb out on their squat, which is usually the most usual one that people bomb out on because um, they go high or whatever. And uh, we let them go on, so they don't have a horrible day. But if you're at the international level, you should probably have your ducks in a row, and you've done these meets a few times. You should be able to call an opener that it sufficiently gets you an attempt in. And if you don't, see you later. We're going to cut the meet a little short. It'll help the speed of the meet. So it's your own fault, and you're not putting up a total. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know why... Th- that rule is is questioned also basically there's there's two rules in there that i think i think that one will go i don't know why that one wouldn't pass i don't know why the uh minimum totals for international events wouldn't pass and the add the female class wouldn't pass <laughs> those three things i think will go on through <clears throat> the knee sleeves eh, we'll see um there's a lot of money now involved in ipf and usapl powerlifting and most of that money now comes from sponsorships. And those sponsorships come from approved gear. And many of these approved gear places sell things like knee sleeves. And they want their knee sleeves to still be sold. And guess what? IPF still wants their money. They're in it for the money. I don't care what anybody says. This is a, It's not a uh, charitable organization. Um, there are people making good money running the Federation. So they don't want to screw that up. Um, and I think then... The other one that I don't think will go anywhere is probably the bench as flat as possible. They're going to have to rethink that one if they want to change it. Um, I could see them maybe adding in the don't put the feet on the bench thing, but I don't know. Um, and the, the feet not being able to touch each other under the bench, that's kind of always been a thing. I got called on that like 14 years ago because I had a bad hip and uh, my feet did come in there. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of where we're at on that. And... uh going to see if there's anything else. We've also had a few questions on the listener page going up. So we'll see if we got anything there that I want to touch on real quick. Um, Yeah, we had one guy talk about the dangers of using an open grip or a false grip in the bench press because the bar could slip from your hands if you don't have a thumb holding it in place in your palm. And he started a poll and asked if people thought that was dangerous. And it's a resounding 81% yes and 19% no. Um, personally, I think you're not very smart. If you if you think no, that it couldn't be dangerous, I'm, that, it, that said, I'm not saying that not to do it. I personally use a false grip. Do I think it's potentially dangerous? Yes. So is jumping from an airplane. But people do that all the time. 
I mean, going out riding motocross or anything like that. But I think it's part of the sport. I like what it does for me. It allows me not to be so internally rotated. Um, I get a firm grip on the bar. I'm able to flex my lats a little harder. And I have less wrist, shoulder, and elbow pain. Um, that in itself, I'm a competitor. Those things outweigh the possibility of the bar flying out of my hands. And that said, I've seen numerous videos of where people did have a thumbed grip and the bar flew out of their hands um, with a bent bar or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's potentially dangerous. We've all seen the videos. We've all seen the videos, but I've also seen thousands and hundreds of thousands of lifts made without it. And nowadays, at least at meets, um, most meets have safety catches. So if a bar is uh, dumped, it doesn't crush you. Um, maybe start training at a gym that has that. Uh, because, I mean, I don't even think spotters can fit that. That's such a split-second thing. I've seen bars dumped, and spotters don't have a reaction time of one one-hundredth of a second. So... But, uh, yeah, it's just part of the sport. If you're scared of it, don't do it. If you're not scared of it or just you, uh, you're able to accept that, you know, roll with it. So, um, and I think that's all I got for you today as far as news and things like that. Um, we will walk on to the topic of the day now, which Lonnie has informed me. We're all going to record. It's going to be recent achievements. There's a top and the top three things we've learned in the last month. Oh, I have to learn three things in the last month. Okay. And we'll go to that here in just one second. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. Okay. Recent achievements. Oh, man. Recent achievements for me. I don't know. I'm training well. Training's going, going real well. Um, I'm squatting more than I ever have. So... Um, that's a good thing. Give you some gym talk here. Um, everybody kind of knows me. I've been through the ringer, been competing for a long time. Um, not too long ago, I had hip replacement surgery, which just to inform new listeners that had nothing, well, we'll say very little to do with my sporting life and more to do with an injury as a child. I was ran over and broke my pelvic bone in my hip structure in 16 places. And they informed me then that later in life, I would need a hip replacement because it was like a car running on bad alignment. Anyways, so anyway, I had that done. It's been about three years ago. And then about a year after that, I tore my hamstring from the bone. So that's been about two years ago. Um, I've been back. I've competed twice. So I squatted 700 in my last meet. squatted 650 in the meet before that. And this meet, as everything's going as, as well as can be, I'm about 15 weeks out. And I'm hoping to open about 700. Um, and take a stab at 800. So everything's rolling good, hitting lots of lifts at the gym. Um, I'll tell you what, this leads into what I've learned. The first thing I've learned, and I guess just reinforce this with myself and other lifters, is know when to walk away. Like last weekend, I was hoping to go in, and <clears throat> the plan was to squat 600 against strong bands. I get to be as the weekend before that, I hit like 540 for a triple um, I get warming up and things just feel bad and I keep going and things still feel bad we get the bands on okay I'm moving we get 315 on in the strong bands which should be just really simple weight for me 
and it was it was bad. It was it was horrible. I was shaking this and that. And you know what I did? Instead of just getting pissed off and saying let's do this thing, I played it smart and walked away. I just walked away. Um, and I've had a few of my lifters now. I pull them. I see a bad day. It's better off to walk away. Um, one one of the calls for this though is where we're at. I'm like 15 weeks out. It's okay. I have time to walk away. I'm also in a mental position now that that's okay. I'm not doing everything I can to uh, that I would be to say five, six weeks out. Um, you get you get that close to me meets and at least for me and my lifters, I try to enforce this. It's a little hard. I don't have control of them outside of the the, the facility. Um, five, six weeks out, your my whole life uh, starts revolving around this coming competition so I do everything I can outside of the facility to make sure that I'm set up to have a good training days because I have numbers that I have to hit at that point it's not numbers I want to hit it's numbers I have to hit to hit the numbers I expect so right now I'm still in those that area where it's like oh, it'd be neat to hit this you know if I hit this I'll be in a good spot here in 10 weeks so um yeah I mean it's, it's good to walk away the other thing that I've I've Reinforce in my own mind again. It's not something I just learned, but it's that uh, something we've preached quite a bit, and I've just seen uh, really showing its teeth recently. It's eighty percent, man. If we can get your eighty percent to go up, and you can crush things, the rest of you is getting stronger without having to go there. So a lot of the work we're doing is really crushing eighty percent and making it making it look good and earning our way up from there. Um, taking smart stabs up uh, only if you're feeling good but if we get our work in at that 80% range and we're, we're constantly crushing it and that 80% is rising we know we're heading in the right direction without needing to creep into that 90, 95, 100% range um, we very rarely go in that range even on, let's say we're doing uh, conjugate style training which um, the, what I'm doing now is loosely based on that uh, even on that we're, we're looking to hit an 8, you know, like an RPE of 8 on most of our days. So it's something that's hard, but you still have a little left in the hole. Um, let's say, like, a couple weeks ago, it was max 5 versus strong bands. Um, and we're not we're not going up to that failure. Uh, I don't I don't preach it. This will be our last lesson. It's uh, things we've learned. It's don't fail. Like, I just, I, I can't stress that enough. I push not failing to all my athletes. You know, we don't push things to failure, and usually that's a pretty easy thing to call because a lifter's going to hit something, and they're like, oh, what do you think I should do? Should I go up? And you can already see it in their eyes. They they haven't bought into that going up. Um, they think they'll probably fail. So we don't try it. There's no point in that. Not in this situation. Not in a training situation. Um, and the more we do that, uh, the more they get in their head that the more they win the more they don't fail the more that's all they know um and when that's all we know then what starts to happen is no matter what i tell them to put on the bar they know they can do and now you're sitting in a comfortable position if you mentally know as you're coming to a bar that i got this there's a really 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 good chance that you got this even if it's like 110 percent um because your head's on your side. And that's something that I try to get all my lifters to gain. And sometimes that takes time. 
Um, we, we want you approaching that bar just knowing I'm going to fucking crush this thing. You know, I'm going to go out there and like kill this because that's what I do. That's all I know. That's all we've done in the gym. We go in and crush things. Um, we go in and hit our 80% and then we go up and we crush things. We stop that. Like this week, I, I did uh, five sets of three on deadlift. Things were feeling amazing. So my choice after that, after my volume work was done, was I'm going to take a few stabs up to something that's still fast. So I just worked up to a pretty quick 600 um, in deadlift and called it there. I was like, that's enough today. I'm 15 weeks out. I don't need to go over 600. I'm going to, you know, the plan is open around 7. But I'm just looking to get fast volume and work on form, things like that. And over the weeks, it's just from continually crushing things, it feels better, better, better. Mentally, you come in, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. It was easy last week. You're just crushing it. So that was, would be my three rules, uh, three things I've learned uh, that have been reinforced to me lately uh, through myself and my other lifters. There's no one to walk away. Like uh, me and one of my other lifters were, were talking about this. He was feeling bad the other day, went in and pushed through it, and he kind of strained his groin a little bit. Not a big injury, but if he was smart enough to just walk away, like I did the following week, he saw me do the following week, he wouldn't have missed a week of training. So no one to walk away. Crush your 80%. Look to consistently raise that 80% up higher. And don't fail. There's times and places to go for big lifts. And failure is going to happen. And you need to be very have a very short memory when that happens. Don't let it eat at you. But don't aim for it. Don't take training sessions, in my opinion, where it's like, okay, we're working up to failure at heavy lifts today. Working up to failure on a heavy sets of 10 or 15 or whatever. Yeah, whatever. That doesn't, that doesn't mess with you mentally. Um working up to failure on heavy lifts where you don't get the prescribed reps, in my opinion, is a bad thing. Um, I would rather see you hit multiple sets where you crush them. So those would be my three lifts. I hope everybody has a good weekend. I'm going to go in now and uh, finish drinking my coffee, eat a couple donuts, and go lift. So thanks a lot. Bye. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. 
So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.